This is Old Movies for Young Stoners, the podcast where cannabis is a gateway drug to classic cinema. We've got the hardest working man in movie criticism, Matthew Zoller Seitz of MZS.Press, here this week for the long-awaited Gorilla episode, where we romp through the jungles of our fevered imaginations with a pair of Hollywood's greatest great apes. First, we've got the often imitated, never duplicated, eighth wonder of the world, the original King Kong from 1933. And then, a young newlywed bride can't stop thinking about the gorilla her new hubby keeps in his basement. From the pen of Ed Wood, it's The Bride and the Beast from 1958. We've got some real gorilla filmmaking here today. All right here on Old Movies for Young Stoners. Old Movies for Young Stoners. Am I gonna get higher? This is Old Movies for Young Stoners, the podcast that pairs pot with cult and classic films to enhance your trip through cinema history. I'm Bob Calhoun, the author of The Murders That Made Us, a true crime history of San Francisco. Find out more at MurdersThatMadeUs.com. Joining me today, he is the co-founder of Six Point Harness Studios and the director of Tig Notaro Drawn, now streaming on HBO Max. Here is Greg Franklin. Hey, everybody. And then she is an actor, voiceover artist, and fashionista. You can see her in Chippendale Rescue Rangers, now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Let's welcome Felina Franklin. Hey, y'all. What's up? This is a gorilla-heavy episode. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's my pleasure to introduce our special guest. He's a TV critic for New York Magazine and Vulture.com, editor-at-large at RogerEbert.com. He runs a bookstore out of his house that you can check out at mzs.press. That's mzs.press. Check it out. Great books there. He is the author and co-author of several books on film and television that he also has available through MZS.press, including the Wes Anderson Collection, The Sopranos Session, his epic book on Oliver Stone, and so many others. He was a finalist for the 1994 Pulitzer Prize for Criticism. Let's hear it for Matthew Zoller Seitz. I think with uh, somebody of, of your prestige, uh, it would be expected that we would have you on here for Billy Wilder's The Apartment or maybe Burt <laughs> Lancaster and The Swimmer, some more important film. But, you know, you, you've been tweeting a lot about gorilla movies, men in gorilla suits. You've written some great essays on kaiju movies and King Kong escapes. What made you love gorilla movies and giant monster movies, Matt? The first uh, movie book that I ever remember reading was a book about the making of the 1976 King Kong, which I ordered from Scholastic Book Club when I was a kid. And that was the one where you you cut the strip of paper off of the catalog and you sent it. It, it was part of the book fair, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's actually right. Yeah, and I remember just standing there staring at these pictures. In the, in the, I think there was like a photo insert or something and, and realizing that like, the head and shoulders and hand were were one thing, and then they had a guy in a suit. It was actually Rick Baker, who's apparently done quite a bit of uh, monkey monkey and ape suit acting. 
in his in his day. He was also the the gorilla in uh, the Incredible Shrinking Woman with Lily Tomlin. A classic. Yeah, but I was always weirdly obsessed with things involving uh, gorillas, and King Kong probably had most the most to do with it. But also, I liked. Remember, there was an episode of Gilligan's Island that had a gorilla. I just recently watched a rerun of the old Wonder Woman that had a gorilla. And and it was like one of the ones set in World War II. It was very bizarre. It was like I think that like the, <laughs> the Nazis had trained a gorilla to be a to be basically a commando or something like that. It was it was just completely nuts in the way that those shows were nuts, you know, just casually so. And um I I actually, yeah, I have it was so funny hearing Bob say, yeah, he's tweeted about, you know, gorillas on film. And I'm thinking like, you know, <laughs> it's kind of almost my brand now. <laughs> Yeah, most. I mean, it's it's certainly a brand. I mean, there are certain things I'm known for, and I think that gorilla tweeting about gorilla related entertainment is 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 one of them now. Because uh -huh. I am I am kind of obsessed, and one of the things that I'm I, I that obsesses me about it is until I would say the Planet of the Apes films with Andy Serkis involved, where they did motion capture. Uh, we've never actually seen a gorilla performance on film, like by a guy in a suit or stop motion or puppets or whatever. That was really convincing, really convincing. What we always get is like a, a, a human's interpretation of a gorilla. But I think maybe that's what makes it so interesting to me. It's what makes it, it, it kind of makes it more fun, you know, to watch in a way is to see someone's artistic interpretation of what a gorilla would behave in, in any of these situations. There's a guy named Terry Notary who is a motion capture actor and he has played, he he has done some work on the Planet of the Apes films, but his main claim to fame is he is the actor who plays King Kong in the new MonsterVerse films. Oh, okay. And in my opinion, this guy, I think this guy is one of the great actors of the, of the blockbuster sort of movie. And he never gets credit. He's not even on the poster. It's a crime that the guy who plays King Kong is not even on the poster for King Kong. And like, you know, Brie Larson is on the poster and Sam Jackson's on the poster. But the guy who actually plays Kong is not on the poster. This is an injustice. But he's really, really good. He's a good phys like physical actor. like you know. And I think it, it's almost like it brings something out of an actor to play a gorilla, whether it's in a suit, it's motion capture. So, okay, they have a regular gorilla in the movie Congo. And then they travel to the Lost City and they, ha and they encounter... They're looking for this lost city that's probably full of gold or something like that. And it turns out they find it, but it's guarded by these gorillas. Yes. Carnivorous. And they have red eyes and pointy teeth. They're really scary. All of the gorillas in that movie are portrayed by actors in ape suits with little audio animatronic help for the face. Right. Uh, and they are, in my opinion, the most convincing analog ape performances uh, after 2001 is space odyssey which was right. so good and i'm not telling any anything y'all don't know this is just for the audience anybody who doesn't know 2001 a space odyssey came out in 1968 and so did planet of the apes and planet of the apes won the oscar for, got a special oscar for achievement in makeup and they didn't give anything to 2001 for that same achievement right it got an oscar for you know best effects generally but you know, and the theory, and this is actually covered in a number of books about 2001, the working theory is that people didn't know they were costumes. They were so good. They just thought they, just thought they were just watching a bunch of trained uh, gorillas or something. Well, the, yeah, the ones in 2001 are, they're kind of a different, they're, they're like skinny apes. You know, they're not like the, the big, the big lumbering apes that you see in, you know, in Bride of the Beast or... Trading Places, I think, has another one. Rick Baker again. 
Was that Rick? That was also Rick Baker. It, it, it's John Landis, so it's got to be Rick Baker because they did that movie uh, Schlock yeah. together. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which also has an ape. No, um, Willis O'Brien, we're, we're already getting into King Kong talk, King Kong 33, but he purposely made Kong not a a strict gorilla, not a not a realistic gorilla. He anthropomorphized it. He gave it human characteristics because he thought that would be more sympathetic to the audience. That if you if you presented just a gorilla, if you could just animate a gorilla perfectly that had no human characteristics whatsoever, uh, it just wouldn't it wouldn't be relatable to a movie going audience. And he had definite ideas about that going into the creation of Kong. Those are such amazing, uh, all, all of those movies that Willis O'Brien worked on. And I believe Ray Harry has an apprentice with him, didn't he? He did. And on Mighty Joe Young, that was the one they worked on together. Right. And, and uh, but yeah, those effects were just, uh, they're still magical. They're still magical. And this is something that I say a lot on Twitter to the point where it probably annoys people. But I, I, I really bristle when I say, when I hear somebody say, I saw such and such a movie made, you know, more than 20 years ago. And it holds up. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. It holds up. It's a, you know, it's a product of its time. Um, I'm not sure what's worse. I, I'll tell you, actually, I do know what's worse. But the choices are saying, oh, it holds up, i.e. it passes muster through modern eyes or complaining that it doesn't. You know, exactly. like in the, the, the effects, the design, the performances, the themes, uh, some of the social attitudes are, don't match that of a uh, politically liberal college graduate alive in the year 2023 therefore the movie's no good that's just really <laughs> weird like we don't do right. that with paintings we don't do that with paintings <laughs> when we go to the museum why do we do it with right. movies i've never understood it i don't think the girl with the pearl earring holds up <laughs> i think it's, it's fucked problematic up. It's, it's, it's problematic, problematic. <laughs> it's fucked up. i mean you know you know what i mean like you go to the lot you, you go to you go to the museum and there's a there's a gigantic uh you know, mural from the 1600s that shows the torture of a of a uh, a heretic, and I'm not I'm not like going to stand there and be mad about it because I'm anti torture and anti killing heretics. <laughs> That's I mean? true. Like, does it, it seems as if this painting approves of the torture of the heretic. You know, it's like <laughs> so beyond that. We should all like glamorizing <laughs> the torture. <laughs> yes, yes. I don't want I don't I don't want to see this in the museum. <laughs> I don't know. It was financed know. by by people who believed in the divine right of kings. Oh my god, you know, the Medici's the Medici's like, you know, Orson Welles says in The Third Man, it's like, you know, the Medici's uh, financed a lot of the art from that per that time and place that we still remember as being great. And the Medici's like made the Corleone's look like, you know, the cast of the Mickey Mouse Club. Exactly. <laughs> Man, a, a, a sadly more serious uh, now question for you, but while we have you, Succession is wrapping up, so is Barry. Are those going to be the last great HBO shows? I don't think so. Whenever I give anybody an answer on a question like that, you sh they should always take it with a grain of salt because I'm I'm the guy who lo who consistently loses the worst in the Oscar pool because I pick things that I actually w wish they would win. Like I let my love of things blind me a lot, but but I love HBO. HBO is far and away my favorite and most formative television platform. But one thing I have I believe, okay, just based on having followed the story of HBO, the company, for over 30 years now, they're the Afghanistan of television platforms. 
wow. Empire after empire drives in and takes them over. And they're like, we're changing everything. We own you now. And then 10 years later, they're like, we are leaving Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> and I have, and I, and I, you know, it's possible that Dave, David Zaslav could be the guy who finally breaks them. But I, I'm just going to wait and see if that's what happens. I think what's more likely is I think HBO has maintained a consistent, everybody knows what the HBO brand is. They've known since the 80s. You know, it's a little dirty. It's not for children. Children are not supposed to be watching HBO. And that's why I thought HBO Kids was kind of the first mistake that they made, which predates, you know, leadership. But HBO is for grownups. HBO is for grownups, not just because it has, you know, graphic violence, nudity, profanity and drug use. And uh, and not just because many of the characters are basically antiheroes or villains, the main characters but also because it doesn't tell you what you're supposed to think about them. It lets you figure it out. And there's almost no other place on anywhere on television, cable, broadcast, or streaming where that's true. There are a few little, like I think FX and AMC and a few other places, Showtime, they kind of do that, but they're basically just taking their cues from HBO. Because HBO showed how it's done. And, and it's supposed to make you, you know, like when you watch Game of Thrones, like, it's a bunch of people fighting over who has the right to royal succession, essentially. And I don't believe in, you know, the monarchy as a viable form of government, but it's a cool, sh it's a great show. Yes. Yeah. And I like the thought experiment of like having to get in the mindset of a different value system, even if it's one I find abhorrent. Like the Godfather movies were a good, they were probably my first example of that as a kid. I was like, wait a second, everybody in this movie is a gangster. Everybody in this movie is a bad person, like somebody that if I if I knew them in real life, I would avoid them and I would wish that they would go away. <laughs> but I'm yeah. sitting here like I'm thinking like halfway two thirds of the way or halfway through the movie. I'm thinking like Michael Corleone. I'm like, I don't know. Can you kill a police captain? <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean I'm going to go out and do that in real life. But like I'm in now. I'm like, OK, the Corleones. Uh, yeah, they're my guys. I like them. Right. <laughs> yeah. You you're know? rooting for heels to to defeat worse heels right <laughs> it's like a heel versus heel match you know it is, in, it in is. wrestling parlance yeah it's great it is it's great it is it is it is and it's like you know that's uh i mean i love the kaiju films too and it's like you yeah know, i mean and that's a that those are movies and one thing i love about them is they acknowledge that people die in these things like thousands of every time these monsters fight thousands of people die and they don't do that like that no. it's like uh fortunately the city was entirely evacuated before godzilla arrived like they don't do that. <laughs> right you know and so, so i know that like so i'm sitting here i'm rooting i don't know if i'm rooting for godzilla or king kong probably king kong because he's the underdog but the people of the people of the city are really not on my radar at that point and i think it's okay right <laughs> it's like gamera gamera is a friend to all children but how many children are destroyed when gamera destroys half of tokyo he just yeah. obliterates yeah. buildings whole neighborhoods apartments houses and but he's a friend to all children the giant turtle so he is he's a friend to all children, he's a friend to all children that know him personally yeah yeah the two little <laughs> annoying kids he's a friend to them but he's just squashing kids moms grandmas oh, yeah. grandpas just, yeah exactly it's like, Gamera, yeah. no that's my grandmother <laughs> okay now you Amazing. are our first guest in a state that does not have legal marijuana of any kind no legal cannabis in texas 
Greg Abbott would probably publicly flog you if he knew that you in front of the Alamo, if he knew you were even on this show. But do you have any memories of, of getting stoned at the movies? I I went to an arts high school and I and I and I was a film student in the 80s. So the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I didn't really become a, a like a pot smoker until college. I mean, I, I, I grew up in a very repressive, repressed household. But once I got into it, I was like, oh, my God, where have you been all my life, baby? You know, and and uh, I do remember that uh, it was interesting that I felt that I I understood movies in a deeper, sort of less obvious way if I had a little bit to smoke before I watched them. Not if I was watching them the first time, but if I was watching them the second time, I actually sort of learned like, what my process was. And like the first time you want to go, don't want to, no alcohol, no, no intoxicants or any, anything mind altering. I want to completely clear head the first time I watch something. Then the second time, you know, it might be a glass of wine or, you know, part of an edible or something. And I find that I'm noticing things that I wouldn't notice if I were in my so-called right mind. Oh, wow. And, 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 you know, I remember one uh, time I was watching Taxi Driver on VHS in a dorm room or something. It was probably the third or fourth time I'd seen it. I, I think someone else suggested we put it on. And um, I realized that there were certain scenes in the movie that were not from Travis, then Travis wasn't present for. So whose point of view are they from? And, and that was when I came to the conclusion that I had, you know, and I was only 19 or 20 at the time. So, you know, I, it's not like I deserve a cookie for this, but I kind of had it all wrong. Like in my mind, I was like, yeah, this entire movie is the subjective point of view of Travis Bickle. That's not true. The, all the scenes in the campaign office that he's not there for, mm -hmm. you know, he's, not, he's only there when he barges in to, to inappropriately harass Sybil Shepherd for a date. Right. Um, <laughs> most of the time he's not there. He can't see, he can't hear what's going on in there. So all of, and also he couldn't imagine that because the dialogue is too witty for someone like Travis. Sure. Yeah. Right? And, and, and also uh, the scene, the scene with Keitel and Jodie Foster. Right. Where, where they're together. And these are, scenes of of his obsessions kind of the reality of their of of, right. of them they become actual people yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah instead of what he wants them to be yeah i think and and you know so i think like okay so this is more like one of those omniscient novels where a lot of the, yeah. time, the crime and punishment actually dostoevsky paul schrader has cited dostoevsky as a, as a huge influence on a lot of his writing and dostoevsky doesn't write first person novels for the most part they're 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 going to the heads of different characters and sometimes they stand entirely outside of them and i think that's what that movie is doing and i think that's what a lot of his movies do like i think we like in goodfellas it's mainly henry hill telling the story but there are times where it's karen telling the story and there are times in within henry telling the story where like for example that long slow close-up of jimmy when uh the cream song is playing and he real and he he basically gets the idea to just kill everybody who might co potentially cause problems giving away the details of the heist i think i think that's a little moment where we go in his head and i don't know I, you know why shouldn't movies have that like why does it have to be all one way and why does it have, why does a movie have to be like, you know, oh, the comedy is so jarring in this otherwise serious movie or a dramatic so jarring in this otherwise comedic movie, like all the sex scenes discourse. It's like so inappropriate they're, they're, It's just a normal romantic comedy. And suddenly there's a sex scene. And I'm like, ah, OK, I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. You they know, or like it's weird. It's weird. Um, but anyway, I, I, I like a variety. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so into old movies recently, because they an old movie kind of tried to be all things to all people. So you you watch a John Ford film and you've got like action, you've got dra very sad kind of 
gripping melodrama and you've got slapstick scenes where guys are bumping into stuff and falling down you know? yeah you even get some of that in citizen kane where it's like doopy doopy doo kind of music <laughs> cues and you're yeah. like what <laughs> that's funny that's a funny yeah. most of the great movies are funny like i, I was just the other day i was laughing uh, a friend of mine said that he was running for office in in a in one of the organization he belongs to and i said i'm preparing two headlines and i gave him the shot of citizen kane where it's like kane loses fraud at polls yeah yeah <laughs> yeah uh donald trump's favorite movie by the way <laughs> i know and it's it, isn't it isn't it telling that like it's, it's not a particularly deep movie they pretty much flat out tell you what you're supposed to make of it citizen kane right it's not a, it's not an ambiguous film. I mean, they just don't give you. There's one answer they don't give you, but otherwise, it's right there on the surface. Anybody can understand the themes of Citizen Kane. But Trump watches it and he's like, "Oh yeah, the problem was he married badly." <laughs> <laughs> okay, to bring it back to the original question, but the yeah, taxi driver was one I remember, and I better remember other ones as well. Like I remember uh, realizing that. Uh, the dominant color uh, uh, in aliens uh, from the midpoint on is red because of the it's the emergency lighting. I don't think I thought about that when I saw it in a theater a couple of times and like sort of what that means in terms of theme and and symbolism, production design. I'm trying to think what else. There were some other there were some other things like that. Oh, fabulous Baker Boys. You know, uh, Armand White wrote a, wrote a, wrote a wonderful piece on fabulous Baker Boys. Uh, I don't remember how I read it. I think, uh, but. I remember watching Fabulous Baker Boys after reading it, and his big complaint was that Michelle Pfeiffer can't actually sing that well. And he was like, the only reason that they think that everybody thinks she can sing well is because she's a beautiful blonde woman. And I was <laughs> like, I was like, what bullshit? Well, how dare he say that? And then I watched the film again. I was like, yeah, she actually isn't that good. I mean, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant performance, but totally like yeah. she's she's okay, but she's not like holy shit, she's the best singer I've ever heard in my life. She's she's all right. She's all right, you know? Right. And this is something you noticed when you were a little higher. Yeah. You know, the first time we were sober and you're like, um, does this, I guess, sort of methodology of, of, of watching a film stone cold sober from the outset, a uh, first time viewing, and then a little weed the second time, have you ever tried to swap that out or, you know, or like maybe maybe you might have some insight the first time if you were a little high? Well, I will tell you that it helps for me. You know, they the cliche is it's like write drunk, edit sober. Right. I don't believe, I don't believe you should write drunk or stone generally unless you get some ideas when you're intoxicated and you write them on a notepad, you know, but that doesn't I don't know if that really counts. But I've always found that like loosening myself up a little and I mean a little before editing that makes the product better because then I'm a little more ruthless. Like, like if I'm, if I've had just a little bit, like, you know, a glass of wine or, you know, a couple of, couple of puffs on a joint, no more than that. And then I edit something. I I look at it and my own stuff too. I'm like, ah, nobody wants to fucking read this delete. Right. No. Or like, Oh my God, sure. you have that as the ending, but that's actually a much better beginning. And I move it up. And there's probably like, I, you know, given the, subject of your podcast i'm sure i'm not telling you anything you don't already know but i was interested in why this was the case for me and i did a bit of reading and i discovered that like the way that it works on your brain it kind of your neural pathways it's just like uh like the way a path gets worn in in the in the forest from people walking on it, it continues getting worn because people see that there's a path and they don't they they stay on the path they don't make a new path yeah, and what uh, apparently what T one of the things THC does is it it knocks you out of your of your established thought process. I do think it's 
important to try to give the reader a good time. And part of that is surprise. And I think like, you know, I'll try to, I, I try not to write every piece, every review with the same structure. I'll try mm -hmm. to end. Sometimes I'll end it by wrapping everything up and sometimes I'll just stop, you know? Right. And sometimes I'll write, uh, I'll, I'll do an entire paragraph. That's just one sentence. And it's like a 400 word sentence. And then I'll do, and then right after that, it'll be a sentence that's four words long. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Cause, right. cause I, I think it's more interesting that way. If it's like you know, you got a Shakespearean monologue followed by, but then again, fuck it. You know? <laughs> this uh, is this is great. This is great writing advice. <laughs> oh, you mix it up, and it's just like you know, I'm not yeah. like you know, I'm not like any kind of a like heavyweight champion of the world or anything. But I, I know enough about fighting, and you know, basically, just you don't do the same. You're not throwing the same punch or the same kick every single time. You right, not do right. the same combination every single time because your opponent starts to see through you and 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 you're and that's the end, you know, mm -hmm. like and you always want to be it's like if you hit him from the right times in a row, the next one should come from the left because they think it's coming from the right. You know, it's exactly. just like you see really, really, really basic sort of stuff. It's not it's not even intellectual. It's just really basic stuff. Actually, the mm -hmm. reason I have all those metaphors is because my one of my mentors was a guy named Mark Diano, who uh was the uh, was an editor at the Star Ledger in New Jersey, where I wrote for over ten years, and Mark was a boxing columnist at the New York Post. Mm. So, so a lot of his metaphors were boxing metaphors, and I learned an awful lot about boxing having Mark as my supervisor. And <laughs> he was great. the guy who I'll tell you one more story. I don't mean to totally derail this entire no, no. podcast, but one one of the one of the great formative moments for me of my of, of, of a, as a journalist was a. Uh, he had just taken over as my editor. I'd had arts editors before, and this was a guy who was a boxing columnist. And so he was really like on me to kind of like to be sure to tell the reader why you're telling them this. Otherwise, they're just going to be bored and turn the page. You know, he's like, it's a daily. We have a readership yeah. of half a million people on Sunday. So and uh, but yeah. the very first piece of mine he ever edited, I turned it into him and he was sitting a couple of cubicles over and he goes, hey, kid, he called me kid, even though I was eight years younger than him. <laughs> he says, hey, kid, come over here. I want to show you something. And I'm like, yeah. And he highlights the first four paragraphs of what I'd written, and he deleted them. And I went, ah! I actually yeah. gasped. And he, and then he points to the next paragraph, and he goes, this is your lead. And I looked at it, and I was like, oh, holy shit, he's right. That's amazing. Yeah. It, I, I love that boxing thing because you, you, it almost feels like as a writer, you're kind of trying to pummel your reader into, into, <laughs> into submission a little bit. Right. <laughs> or, or, or you're doing the or you're doing the rope a dope, which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I always say. It's like there are certain people in popular culture who are rope a dope storytellers. Yeah. And I think you know, I think Ken Burns is one. I think I uh -huh. think uh, I think Mad Men, the show, was another one. You know, and what I mean by that, and Spielberg's entire career has been a rope a dope, right? Where where he, he you know people who fancy themselves as intellectuals and look down on Spielberg. They complain about a thing that is so obviously intended just to get it into the marketplace, and they don't notice yeah. any of the sophistications, ironies, and contradictions inherent in every single Spielberg film because they're so fixated on the thing that they did to just get into the marketplace, like the like the framing device and Saving Private Ryan. Right, right. You know, and it's like the framing device and Saving Private Ryan has all has so little to do with the rest of the movie. It's just an excuse to get you in there so he can give you the real shit. <laughs> right. You no. Know, so that's fantastic. Mad Men is like that too. It's like I, I, I. It's generally a very well respected show, but there are some, there are some who believe that it's like it's basically an overrated soap opera, and I'm like, all right, 
I, I attended a Mad Men conference where some of the some of the top like sort of semi auticians that I know of were there presenting papers talking about various aspects of the show and how deep it was. And, uh, you know, I guess they were just making it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a soap opera. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, never forget a soap opera is a drama that you don't personally like. <laughs> if you like it it's just a drama if you don't like right. it it's a soap opera <laughs> it's just a soap opera we're millionaires boys i'll share it with all of you why in a few months it'll be up in lights on broadway movies were made. Adventure to make you wonder if it's true while your eyes convince you that it is. Truly the thrill of thrills. Don't miss it this time. When French-American anthropologist and explorer Paul Duchayou became the first European to publish descriptions of African gorillas in the 1850s, the Victorian world was plunged into an epidemic of gorilla fever. His depictions of these higher primates as brutish monsters inflamed the imaginations of several generations of pulp writers, including Edgar Rice Burroughs, who first brought us Tarzan of the Apes in 1912. Another who was influenced by Du Chaillou's sensationalistic accounts was Marion C. Cooper, a World War I bomber pilot and adventurer turned filmmaker whose 1928 semi-documentary Chang thrilled audiences with real-life footage of Asian tigers and elephants that was as dangerous to obtain as any bombing mission. Wanting to up the spectacle past the boundaries of reality, Cooper and his creative partner, Ernest Shodzak, envisioned a movie with a giant gorilla rampaging through New York City. To bring their 50-foot ape to life, they brought in special effects wizard Willis O'Brien, the innovator of stop-motion animation. Also featuring a slew of cool dinosaurs, Robert Armstrong and Bruce Cabot as two-fisted filmmakers patterned after Cooper and Shodzak, and Hollywood's first scream queen, the great Fay Ray, from RKO in 1933, this is King Kong. Now, Matt, before we bring you into this, I, I want to hear what Felina thought of King Kong, because she is our young youngest stoner. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, get to you in a second. But Felina, King Kong. I love King Kong. I have seen, I, I do need to preface this. I have seen King Kong before when I was very young. I was about probably like 10, 12 or something when I first saw the first King Kong, I think. Mm -hmm. I remember being terrified as a 10-year-old. I was super spooked by the weird face that uh, King Kong had. I uh, And you know what? After watching it last night again, I agree with my 10-year-old self. King Kong is scary. King Kong is so spooky. It's super fun. I 
definitely didn't remember as much as I thought I did. Um, I was like, oh yeah, King Kong. Everybody knows King Kong. Everybody knows the story. Um, but I did not remember that there were dinosaurs in King Kong. All I really remember was that he was on stage and then on the Empire State Building. That was it. Um, also, <laughs> yeah. spoiler alert, I guess. But also, if you haven't seen King Kong by now, you're like, are you living under a rock? But yeah, I, I had so much fun watching it. Um, it was... It was great. We talked a little bit about the 76 King Kong earlier. And that I was six when that came out. And I saw that before I saw the 30s Kong. And I, I liked the 76 Kong okay. It was like supposed to be the best. It was supposed to be what Star Wars later was or what Jaws was. It was supposed to be this biggest, greatest movie of all time. But I think I was a little disappointed in it as much as a six-year-old could be. And then I saw the 33 Kong on TV. They sh Some local station showed it. And I was just so blown away. It was like, oh, this movie has a fuck ton of dinosaurs in it. Why didn't they do that in the new movie? What They just gave right. us a stupid snake in the new movie. I've got an Allosaurus fighting Kong. I've got a Stegosaurus, Brontosaurus, Pterodon, everything. And, and that I was just like, it really opened up the idea that, oh, the older thing can be better than the newer thing. Because as a kid, I think you just want the now and you want the newest thing. And that's what you're geared towards, uh, whether you know it or not. But uh, your feelings on the 33 Kong. Well, it's magic. It's magical. It's magical. It's still magical. It's still magical. And, and, you know, it was when I was a kid and again, it takes me back to something we were talking about at the beginning, but it's like, you know, does it hold up? N no, <laughs> you know, like it's obviously, these are obviously special effects and they're, they're like toys. They're like toys that have come to life and, and, you know, it's a miniature and, you know, they built miniature jungles with matte paintings behind them and, and it's stop motion, everything stop motion, except for the humans. And, uh, it's really incredible. Like almost like a magic trick, like, like it's sort of closer in spirit to, you know, those silent movies where they were kind of discovering how you could use editing to make people think that magic was occurring like having things disappear and reappear and trick photography you know things done with mirrors and forced perspective backdrops and stuff like the, the 33 king kong is much closer in spirit to that than it is to something like a modern star wars or marvel film or something or like avatar that. yeah yeah it's really not like that it's more like like almost nobody is making movies like this anymore because they kind of don't have to i guess that's probably a large part of the reason but Except for the people who are still making stop motion animation, you know, like the Leica Studios and Wes Anderson and people like that. And Phil um, Tippett. Yeah. And in fact, when Wes Anderson did the Fantastic Mr. Fox, he insisted on uh, everything should have all the all the animals should have actual like animal hair, like organic. Right. Animal hair. because And, and the animators said, OK, well, Wes, you don't actually want to do that because when we adjust them to make them move, every time you press down on these things, it leaves like a thumbprint. So you're literally going to see fingerprints on these creatures. And he's like, I know. I like that. <laughs> he's like, I asked. I specifically asked for that because I actually want that. Yeah. Because it reminded him of like King Kong, because you look at King Kong, and you can actually see his his fur looks like it's sort of rippling because of the, the you know because they had to manipulate him and 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 do frame by frame i believe some of the animators lost their jobs because of this you know they're like we have a f we figured out a way to get around that and he said no <laughs> right exactly <laughs> exactly yeah yeah 
Kong's made of rabbit fur. He's composed of rabbit fur. And I have a DVD from 20 years ago now of, of King Kong that they released to coincide with the Peter Jackson Kong. And it's got a commentary track by Harryhausen. And Harryhausen says, oh, it's it's the wind. It's really windy on Skull Island. And when he's up on the Empire State Building, it's the wind blowing yeah. his fur. And, you know, he's like Harryhausen still was still such a nerd that he he felt the need facetiously to be sure yes. to come up with an explanation of why why there's the thumbprints. He knows why, but he still yeah. wanted to have a plausible real-world explanation for why Kong's first. Well, there is an incredible, that. like, you know, there are some incredible shots in King Kong, like incredible in the sense of just the idea of the shot is incredible. Right. That there's a there's a shot more than one probably and when he's up on the Empire State Building and the planes are coming at him, where you're in the cockpit of the plane. And you think about how, what had to be done in order to achieve that. They had a camera that was like probably on a crane or something. And they're moving yeah. the thing towards the miniature model of the Empire State Building that has the miniature model of Kong on it. And they're, and they're animating that frame by frame. That's cool. That's just really cool. Like if somebody did that exact same thing now, you wouldn't look at it and go, that looks fake. That doesn't look like a real giant gorilla. You know, you would right. go, wow, that's really cool. Well, and the, the director... Uh... Marion C. Cooper, the producer, is was a World War One uh, pilot, and him and Shodzak are the guys flying the biplane at the end that kills Kong because they're like, well, "This is taking two years of our lives. Let's finally kill this thing. We want to be the ones to to, to do it." That's great. That's great. Right. Yeah, it's also just really resonates. Like the whole story really resonates, and it's the first. I think it may have been the first tragedy that I ever saw as a child. Like, I knew that Kong wasn't the bad guy. It was like King Kong and Frankenstein are very similar. They're sort of adult, yet they're also kids. And yeah. they have adult urges and desires, but but they're kids, too, at the same time. So it's very confusing for them. And like, and neither one of them asked for this. No. They, they no. didn't ask to be in this situation. They're, they're put no. there by, by the white men who are the real, you know, villains in all of this. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, it's funny. You're actually reminding me when I was, you know, the arts high school that I went to, there was a there was a, a painting teacher. I was in the visual arts cluster and there was a painting teacher named Mr. Mosley. And I, he and I used to talk about movies. He was a big movie buff. And one time uh, the local public television station ran King Kong and we both happened to watch it. And like I mentioned, him, I was like, oh, yeah, I saw King Kong on Channel 13 last night. And he's like, I watched it, too. And he looks at me like really seriously. And he goes, you know what that movie is really about, right? And I was like, no. And, and he gave me this and I've since like read sort of other people doing this, but it was kind of his interpretation as a black man of the story of King Kong and basically how it resonated with him. And he said and he, and he said that the takeaway of it was don't basically don't don't get involved with blonde white women. <laughs> and I was like, women. I, yeah, and I was like, you know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, like. I'm like, wow, that was, I'm like, okay, I'm never going to see King Kong the same way now. He's like, yeah, like, you know, he ends up in New York City dying for a white woman. That was his takeaway. Blondes have more fun. Yes, <laughs> exactly. A any thoughts, uh, Felina, on Faye Ray's performance in this? Oh, yeah, I love her. I love her so much. She did so good. Um, I thought she was iconic when she was stuck under the log and watching king kong tear open uh this dinosaur's mouth um she did such a good job i loved you know back 
in the olden days, you know, all of these actors are like this. These actors are so mid. Like these are so. <laughs> these actors are not giving what they should be giving. She was giving everything, and I really, I love, I really appreciated that. I thought that was awesome. I think this, honestly, maybe some of some of the best acting for the thirties. Her scream is was so good that they just used it for other women in in horror movies for for yeah. years afterwards. That they just say took that loop and put it, you know, probably recorded to a record, but they would put it into other things because she had the ultimate scream. And this is her second monster movie because she's in Doctor X before this. Oh it, yes, it's why I said she was the first <laughs> scream queen. Then she's in uh, Mystery uh, of the Wax Museum. And uh, Cooper and Shodzak made the most dangerous game simultaneously with Kong because the stop motion was taking so long with Kong that they took the sets and all the the map paintings and everything and made a version of the most dangerous game with her. And she's screaming in that. that. So, I yeah, I didn't know that. So they just like kind of made uh, they used they, they just made a whole second movie with the same sets. Yes. Far out. And it'll some Amazing. of the same actors and everything. And they just had, like I said, those sets, those sound stages, and it was just taking an impossibly long time to finish Kong that they greenlit and got another movie made with the same resources. That's cool. Can That's imagine really cool. it took forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One, one thing that, you know, like Felina, I, that I, you know, you think, you know, Kong, but when you watch it again, and especially when you're, you know, parked on the couch with a lot of marijuana in your head. Uh, the thing that, that really stuck out to me is this must have been the most violent movie. I was really kind of taken aback by the violence in it for the time. You know, you've got a lot of oozing blood. You know, you've got a lot of like... Um, really violent deaths uh happening yeah. in the movie men getting stepped on and like yeah and chewed up and chewed up and yeah. And, yeah. and and yeah a lot of oozing blood and and like i i have to go back to like un chien on you know to like think of something so violent that i've seen you know uh in any movie previous to that and especially for a hollywood film like what what are some of the and i defer to the movie experts here how is this not known as like the most violent movie of the 1930s? Well, that's interesting. I hadn't, I, you know, I hadn't thought of it in quite those terms, but uh, you know, the fact that it's animals, like it was human, yeah. on, it was human on human violence. I think it wouldn't have gotten through, but, but remember that they didn't have a production code officially until. Uh, oh, true. 1934. Definitely a pre-code yeah. film. It's pre but but even though it was pre-code, there was there were originally some things in the movie that were just too far. Like the whole scene, there was an entire scene where uh, they're trying to cross the the log bridge, and Kong is shaking them, and they fall out into the canyon where they get eaten alive by giant stop motion spiders. Right. And it was cut. There were two scenes that were cut from King Kong. One was a scene where Fay Ray swims naked, uh-huh. and King Kong is looking at her like, Rrr. and uh, they cut that. And the other one they cut was the all these guys getting eaten alive by the giant spiders because they just said this is too much. Oh, bad! Right. But yeah, wow. it is. It is very violent. It is very violent. It's very violent, and and a lot of movies from the 30s and 40s I find uh, to be they feel more violent than a lot of movies that are made now where they show you stuff like right. you don't see close-ups of like fangs and claws tearing into flesh, but you see it from a distance. But somehow that makes it more horrible to me. 
And just like in scenes in like film noir and gangster films where somebody shoots somebody and you see them going like, and now, and now I'm going to kill you. And they point the gun and you don't, and you see them shoot the gun, but you don't see the person getting shot. And that seems colder to me. Or sometimes you'll see people getting stabbed. Like you'll see their shadow, their shadow on the wall getting stabbed. Mm-hmm. You don't actually see them. And yeah. that, to me, that's more nightmarish to see it that way. There's that scene in Val Luton's The Leopard Man, which is probably about 10 years after Kong, where the the leopard is after this young woman, this young girl. She said her mother insists she goes to the store to pick up something, even though it's night. And they know that there's possibly a big cat loose. She doesn't want to do it. She ends up going to the store and getting back. And her mom's like punishing her somehow. Her mom's a real, real piece of work. And she won't let her in. She won't let her daughter in. Like, you go to the store. You do what I told you. And the the girl is screaming. And and then you just see, like, the blood seep under the door jam. Like, under the door. Like, you just see, you hear the screams. And you see the blood just kind of seeping in under it. And that scene, like, still creeps me out today. It creeped me out as a kid. And even though right. I was disappointed in that movie because it's Val Luton weirdness where I wanted to see a leopard man like the wolf man and Val Luton never played that way. It was too much for me. But right. that scene, <laughs> that scene like was burned into my mind. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, that's 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 great filmmaking. Right. Because it, it, it's framing the violence in a in a in a really creative way that sticks with you, you know, that that isn't just a person getting killed. Now, for this movie, usually I, I wake up in the middle of the night, I watch a movie, I go back to bed. And if uh-huh. I'm watching like an 80s horror film, I have to wear headphones because otherwise all the screaming keeps my wife up and she wakes up and thinks yeah. somebody's being murdered next door. <laughs> Imagine that. So, you know, those those movies I wear the headphones are, but there's a point in Kong where I'm like, so not just Faye Ray, but all these dudes are screaming as the, the carnivorous Brontosaurus is chomping on them. Yeah. Or Kong, there's so much screaming in it, I had to put it on headphones. And then later Rosie's like, yeah, well, when you were watching the commentary track, you didn't put on the headphones, and I could hear the screams through, like, Harryhausen talking <laughs> over it. You know, there's just scream. The movie has a lot of people screaming in agony in it. Yes. Now, Greg, um, you're an animator. You're an animation director. Uh-huh. Um, yes. A little different than what Willis O'Brien did, but what's your take on this movie as an animator? You you can see that they're figuring out so many things. And Harryhausen, you know, I'm a lot more familiar with Harryhausen's work than, than to be honest, most of Will, Willis O'Brien's work. I mean, I've seen that, and I think Mighty Joe Young was Willis O'Brien, too. And Harryhausen, so it's their, their and, careers. And both of them. Yeah. The movement is not smooth. It's not. It's not realistic. It's what you would call what what a modern audience might call stylized, right? It's an interpretation. You know, when when you're when you're animating, like let's say in the in the traditional sense, you really don't have to draw every single frame. You don't need to draw twenty four frames of different animation to create a you know a, a second. You can really get away with drawing every other frame which is what in the in in the animation is a technique is known as 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 shooting it on twos and that happens a lot in king kong so you have every other frame exposed but i think that there's also some shooting on threes and fours you know happening in in king kong um which you see a lot in anime um you know like the frame rate is lower and in some ways there 
I, I feel like that style has almost come back into vogue in certain ways when you see certain movies like Spider-Verse. There's a deliberate steppiness, I guess, you know, to the animation where it's a reaction against the sort of fluid movement. So it's almost kind of come back in a way, this kind of stylized movement. I think that's why it 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 feels magical, honestly, is that you know what you're seeing is not real. What you know what you're seeing is an amazing fantasy. You're not seeing the reality of the new Planet of the Apes films. I don't know what it is about how people react to things. You know, it could be anything from the 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 black and white photography to seeing um, the 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 thumb the thumbprints on the fur to seeing the lowered frame rate and sometimes Kong just pops up and the lack of in-betweens, you know, in-between stages of him going from here to here makes it scarier. You know, he just like pops up and it's like, ah, you know, and seeing the obvious cut between the stop motion and then the giant head with the guy in the mouth, you know, like those are obviously two completely different things that you're seeing. And that all works to the movie's favor in a, in a, in a really interesting way that, uh, I feel as an animator, like, I don't know how, you know, it's a time, it's a time technique that is probably gone to animators these days now. I don't know how you can really do that in a visual effects way that a modern audience would accept. To me, that's what's uh, precious about Kong. And part of the magic that, that Matt's talking about is that you're really seeing like a, a handcrafted fantasy that is made with miniatures but feels enormous it's time once again you've all been waiting for it the tiktok report with felina franklin okay so there are a plethora of tiktoks on king kong um many which are getting like millions of views there are a few that have like three million I see one with at least, you know, 50,000, 16,000. I picked a couple. There's, okay, King Kong obviously is iconic and, and TikTok knows it for sure. My favorite comment that I have found so far on any of these videos is from Gary J. Hackerax Jr., who says, I don't remember where this, where this in the 30s because i wasn't born in the 30s i was born in the 60s but i remember them in the early 70s king kong godzilla what (laughs) in which the only (laughs) sorry the tiktok is just the trailer for king kong that is the only context the only that's my favorite comment that I've ever seen on any TikTok ever. Can you, can you read it one more time? Yes, please. I don't remember where this in the 30s, because I wasn't born in the 30s. I was born in 60, but I remember them in the early 70s. King Kong Godzilla. <laughs> very, very profound statement. Profound. Profound. Oh my God. I love these. Most of them are just clips of the movies. There is one TikTok comparing all of the faces of each King Kong, which is really awesome. I will say it gets 
really good in 76, but 67 is haunting. That's right there. (laughs) Right there. He fights a robot Kong in that. That one is terrifying. I will say King Kong is consistently scary. King Kong has been scary since the 30s and all the way up until 2021. Look at that. That's spooky too. I love all of these. I TikTok knows about it. It's forever a classic. And uh, it is beauty that killed the TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Greg, uh, weed yeah. recommendation for King Kong. I, I don't remember what I smoked. Um... You know what? That's fine, Greg. Uh, that it was bound to happen on the show sooner or later. I don't. I don't know. I, I. I can tell you that Felina came over two consecutive nights this week, and both Bride and the Beast and King Kong. I was so high that I had an almost out of body experience watching these films. Kind of especially uh, Bride and the Beast. Um, I. I felt like I was floating above the living room watching myself watch this film. I wish it was something, you know, cool that was thematically appropriate that I smoked, like Grape Ape or, you know, Gorilla Diesel or something like that. But it was just whatever I had laying around the house. You're just like scraping, scrape, doing yeah. resin scraping yeah. for this one. That that's, Exactly. I smoked Gorilla Diesel for Kong. I went to the dispensary. It's uh, I got a pre-roll from Lowell. They're the ones who put it out. Uh, yeah 25% THC so a lot big THC payload and for the first half of it like the human half where they're on the boat and there there's all the right. 30s fast talk or that part where the bum the wino basically tells mm-hmm. you everything you need to know about Carl Denham and what they're doing yeah. and and he's talking right. to the theatrical agent in that 30s way well he shoots these pictures with animals in it and they're up to something and and the uh-huh. Fay Ray stuff where she's she's destitute uh, like the thirties dialogue was really hitting me and I was like uh-huh. laughing at it and laughing with it. You know, uh, Robert Armstrong, who's Carl Denham in it, the big movie producer, we're going to have a show, you know, it, yeah. it, it struck me that this movie, like what sites was saying about weed, making you think of things in different ways. I never realized that this movie is basically like a Busby Berkeley movie from the same year where a bunch of guys are putting on a show like right. Footlight Parade like a, and Gold like Diggers of Mickey, 33. Mickey and Judy type of show. Yeah, except they're bringing a gigantic ape to New York that ends up destroying <laughs> the, the elevated train and climbing the Empire State Building. But otherwise, it's the same. The, the Gorilla Diesel really got me into the part. Like, the 30s dialogue was hitting me more than the monsters for whatever reason the effects of Gorilla Diesel were, were putting me into the 30s dialogue. Like, that part where it's uh, Max Steiner's score goes all jazz, like 30s jazz and it's everybody's filing into the theater and like some guy like jostles a woman and she's like you know we've got there's enough gorillas in new york already and like just they're (laughs) they're, they're like oh i can't see the screen it's too close it's like oh it's not a movie ma'am and all that stuff gorilla diesel got me there the one thing i'm gonna say is it has a really mellowing effect and so at first it's like really really making me see the movie in this crazy way but later i'm just a little too relaxed and i i wish i had gorilla diesel for wages of fear I recommend Uh it with Wages of Fear. I think you're still going to want to go Sativa, Blue Dream. Both movies are really Sativa movies, and I was smoking kind of a Indica 
dominant hybrid, right. I think, with uh, Gorilla Diesel. I did not write that down. It's a wonderfully balanced hybrid strain, according to Weed Maps. That's what it says. But <laughs> uh, totally, uh, the woman at Harborside Dispensary in San Leandro told me it's one of their most popular strains is Gorilla Diesel that they're really that it's really popular in San Leandro and Oakland right now. So it, it was good for Kong, but I would choose something else. You know, the pun didn't quite win out. You know, you're choosing it because of a pun yeah. and it might not be uh-huh. the best way, but it was still pretty good for it, but it's relaxing. So definitely an intense movie like Wages of Fear. It'd be good. And I already smoked Grease Monkey for Touch of Evil, so that was kind of out. And we just did Touch of Evil, but Grease Monkey might be really good for this too. But I still think a mellow, you know, a, a sativa that'll just make you giggly at everything and and really trip out over the dinosaurs. I think that's the way to go. Uh, Felina, any thoughts on the weed for King Kong? I hate to say that I was smoking with my father, and whatever she he didn't was, know. whatever he was smoking is what I was smoking. And I just was gonna, what, what, what were, what were we smoking? You gave me that Pax. Uh, I'm not prepared. We finally fucked up here because it turns out that King Kong is leaving HBO Max in a couple of days, but it is available through uh, Amazon Prime for rent, or you can buy it through Amazon Prime. But also I want to say that you could check this movie out on disc from your local library. So if you're if you've been listening to the show for a while and you're really getting into old movies and you live in a major city or even a major suburb, your library has just tons of DVDs and Blu-rays and just go check it out. Pick score a DVD player or Blu-ray player on the cheap. You can find them for like 40 bucks now. And just I know that most computers, some of you are watching movies on on laptops and things that don't have disk drives anymore. But really uh, go to your grandparents' house with a bunch of movies that you checked out from the library. There are at least 24 copies of King Kong on Blu-ray and DVD in the Los Angeles uh, public library system. There are 10 copies in the San Francisco public library system. And for Mad Solar Sites, there are four copies in the Dallas public library system. So it's out there. Uh, and also those discs have the commentary track by Ray Harryhausen and other features and documentaries. So check out the awesome. ch- check out the discs and you can check them out of the library for free. You don't rent them at the library. You get them for free. So just return them. So other people listening to the show can enjoy King Kong. In 1958, a year after his triumph, or anti-triumph, Plan 9 from Outer Space, schlock auteur Ed Wood was hired to write the screenplay to this discount bin gorilla flick. Not content to just have a guy in an ape suit romping around Bronson Caverns, although there's plenty of that. The genius behind Glenn or Glenda loads this movie with plenty of his trademark kink and takes the implied bestiality of the ape movie genre and makes it disturbingly consensual. It's a tale of a love triangle between a newly married man, his young bride, and his pet gorilla Spanky. Throw in some baffling past lives hokum and swathe it all in Angora and you have the bride and the beast. Uh, Felina, your thoughts on Bride and the Beast? I don't know what (laughs) reviewer ever gave this movie three and a half stars. This movie does not deserve three and a half stars. This movie deserves (laughs) like two and a half less than that. Um, (laughs) This, but with that being said, I had a lot of fun watching this movie. Just because a movie is bad doesn't mean 
it's not good. <laughs> I had a right. lot of fun. This movie is about a couple. They they fall in love and she goes to his house and first of all, how what is the deal with these old movies and having these people fall in love instantly without ever seeing the person's house before? Or like in King <laughs> right. Kong, those two fell in love in like three days. Was that the time or was that the movie? <laughs> Now, imagine this. It's probably even unrealistic for the time. But you weren't supposed to be able to fuck until you were married. So people rushed into marriage. So so people, yeah, people would just like, oh, I met him on vacation and we're married now because they wanted to fuck. Wow. Yes. So they made those bad decisions, those one-night stands, those walks of shame that you might make when you're partying down. They et they etched them in legality and had to make a life of that just because they were hot for each other while dinosaurs were trying to eat them on Skull Island. <laughs> yeah, but like... Do they like do they get a divorce later? Like or do they just yes. like, fuck up their children? They fuck up their children mostly. Like oh. think of all the fucked up people that you know that are of certain ages. Oh, you're so right. Yeah. I guess so. No, that's crazy. Okay. That is insane to me. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, it's just, it's just that I have to interview, I, I've got to interview Jeremy Strong in a little bit. Before you go, we've got 15 minutes with Matt Solar Sites. Your thoughts on <laughs> Edward D. Wood Jr.'s uh, scripted uh, Bride and the Beast. Let's get that in there. I want your thoughts on that before you go. Well, like all of his movies, it's, you know, it's unique. It's like, I, I think multiple generations of film fans were, were raised uh, to just assume that ed wood was the worst director of all time but i don't really see how anybody who makes movies as personal as ed wood could be considered a bad director like i think he's making you know like i, I and i've i've said this many times but i i think the only difference between ed wood and david lynch is david lynch is a genius <laughs> i mean i really and i mean that as a compliment to both to both of them yes honestly i mean like david david lynch is not making movies that are according to any sort of rules but his own you know, right. like like no, almost none of them stand withstand scrutiny. You know, by the standards of like three act screenwriting tutorial, and and you know the acting is like, like everybody in the movie is kind of giving a performance in a different register right. uh, a lot of the time, and that's fine. We just don't see it. We don't see it in movies that often, so we don't. We think it's bad. You know, if you've got like somebody as naturalistic as as Kyle MacLachlan in Blue Velvet, and then in the same film you've got Dennis Hopper going completely wacky and dean stockwell i think the most stylized of them all probably and and uh you know and isabella rossellini is giving a performance right out of a 1940 noir film but but yeah this is but this story is just it's 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 what read the story read the synopsis you'll get the you'll immediately go what <laughs> it's like this guy he marries this woman and then he takes her back to his house and he's got a gorilla in his basement in a cage right Spanky, spanky in a cage. Spanky, spanky. Yes. Yeah, it's like okay, and then and then and then it and he like his his favorite hobby is to bring women down to tempt Spanky. You know, oh, you can't have this. You you can't. You want to. You want the woman. You can't have it. And this a frustrate Spanky. Poor Spanky. You know. <laughs> right. 
it's so nuts. And then she has dreams of being a gorilla in a past life. And then this guy thinks that she's the weird one. Yeah. And there's this whole scene where like the gorilla comes up to her and he's basically feeling her up, but she's kind of standing there like she's having fun. Yeah, it's like I should I should see where this is leading. You know, like she's a, she's not like, you know, recoiling or anything. She's kind of like No, it's very consensual. <laughs> now, is. now is he feeling her up or is he feeling the the angora sweater? Well, that's a valid question if you're talking about Ed Wood. And and you know, and it's also this is a movie where like, you know, an entire team of, of Freudian analysts could have fun with this movie. Oh my god. Like all, yeah. all of his films. But it's like it's a guy who marries a woman, he marries her, very traditional thing to do in the society, marrying a woman, and he takes her to his house, and there's a gorilla in yeah. the basement. In right. <laughs> Yes. And there's torches with fire in the house. Yes. You know, yes. just blazing torches in the house. There's there's a full on Frankenstein's lab down there. Yeah. It's uh <laughs> yeah. and it's like, you know, it's like you know, hiding things, you know, underground. Yeah. Subterranean right. in the basement is not like it's not like you gotta go to, you know, analyst school to figure out what that is. Right. <laughs> And then they're That's out true. in the jungle. Then they're out in the jungle, and there's all these, you know, scenes of like uh, wild. They they're willingly exposing themselves to what to the wild, to the to the to the wild. And there's like uh -huh. constant threats, you know, rhinoceros, uh, yeah, tigers, yeah. tigers. You know the and and that's that incredible. It's I think it's kind of an incredible scene with you see the tigers paws in the dirt. And then it gets dragged through back through the jump brushes, uh, through the bushes. That was so weird, dude, dragging her through mm -hmm. like like a cub, you know, like by the scruff of her neck. You don't yeah. really see it. That's an indelible image in this film. Well, and also just, you know, knowing the kind of repression that Ed Wood suffered, he was probably more out than somebody normally would have been, even for Hollywood at that time. But he wasn't out now. And this is a very... This movie and like so many of these movies they're about like there's this secret life there's this secret alternate life this suppressed desire that's like pushed down uh-huh yeah and and it's right. like you know hey uh, let's get married and now i'm going to take you back to the house that i live in and i'm going to show you what my life is actually about and there's <laughs> a gorilla there's a gorilla in a cage in the basement in a cage <laughs> Yes. What's up with the the husband? I mean, you're right. It's like his kink is to show women his gorilla, and this is what he's yeah. doing on his wedding night. I think his I think his kink is to show the gorilla his women. Oh, Ooh, uh, that... I think that's what his actual kink is. <laughs> he raised it the monkey from a baby. Yeah. Well, and as like you know, the, what they always say is, uh, you know, it's a cliche of. Uh, psychoanalysis but like everybody in the dream is you right everybody in the dream is you not just the mm -hmm. character who represents you but everybody they meet is you somehow and so yeah. i can say that like the you know the husband the, the wife and the gorilla are all edward and depending right. on which characters are in the scene at a given time uh, but, you know it's telling you different things about the artist and like it's very clear and all the animals you know, the jungle, the juxtaposition of the house, the perfectly normal American house, and then the jungle. Perfectly normal. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it is. It is. This is a whole uh, rat's nest of neuroses compiled into a, a film. It's 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 amazing. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of filmmakers who get a lot more respect who don't show us as much of themselves as Ed Wood. Did. That is so true. Every <laughs> single time. 
And Ed yeah. Wood, I mean, he wasn't gay. At least that's what he said he wasn't. He was a cross-dresser. He wouldn't identify. I mean, it's hard to take somebody from the 50s and put them into now. Like, would he identify right. as trans now? He might. Or she might. But back then, he was a he, you know, and he, he liked women, and he liked to wear women's clothes. And But you think about it, him outing himself that much in his films, especially Glenn or Glenda. Like it was a big risk. Um, it was a huge risk, and I it still is mm-hmm. rapidly becoming the same risk in certain states, in half the states in the country. But I mean, sodomy wasn't legal in California until the seventies. You could do serious time just for being a weirdo like that. And here he is. I mean, it's Hollywood. It's a little protected because you can't just start right. walking up the entire film industry, but, right. um, or half the film <laughs> right. industry. But yeah, it's just a tremendous risk for him. Well, you know, Kenneth Anger. Uh, Kenneth Anger was making films mm-hmm. around the same time as as Ed Wood, and in his own very different way, I think he was traveling that he was traveling that path. But are the Kenneth Anger films as entertaining as Bride and the Beast or Plan Nine? I mean, Ed Wood is <laughs> more of an entertainer. Yeah, he's speaking for the most part. He's speaking in the language of the experimental film, and it's and that's not as accessible. But in terms of just skipping the preliminaries and going straight right into the subconscious, like diving into the deep end of the pool. Like they're very similar. I mentioned Lynch in that way. And I think, you know, I think Jane Campion has a touch of that. Although Jane Campion is much better at like presenting it in a narratively comprehensible way. But like once she's ready to cut loose, she throws you in the deep end of the pool, you know, like a movie oh, like yeah. Sweetie or the piano or something like that is just like, Holy oh, shit. The piano, you know, crazy. The piano is so nuts. Yeah, but I like that. I like those kinds of like prime, I love, I love prim, primal films. Primal films are really thing I really like. Matt, before you have to jump off for your your call with uh, Jeremy Strong, which is surreal to me in itself, uh, are do you have any screenings or any events that you would like to tell um, the uh, the listeners of old movies for young stoners about? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I've got this monthly film screening series at IFC Center in New York, and we have uh, dates confirmed for May. Uh, On the 15th, we're going to be showing Seed of Chucky, which will be uh, co-hosted by myself and Kyle Turner, who has written a a new, uh, basically it's a guide to essential films for LBGTQA film uh, fans. Uh, he, I asked him for a list of movies that he would consider showing and uh, Seed of Chucky was on there. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I've never seen that particular film in a book of this nature before. And and so that's why we're showing it, because I want to hear him explain, like, why this movie? Um, but I also know that, you know, the Chucky movies are kind of incredible on their own terms. But I think through this prism, it's great. And then on the 17th, uh, we're showing Aliens at IFC Center. Aliens, the original theatrical cut. I'm hoping it'll be on 35 and Sarah Welch Larson, who wrote a book called Becoming Alien, which is sort of a kind of a, a theological and moral reading of the alien movies, uh, will be our guest and we're going to have a book signing. And that's a, that's a great, great book. If you love the alien films or you love science fiction, Sarah Welch Larson's book, Becoming Alien, needs to be on your shelf if it isn't already. So, And can is that available through MZS.press, Matt? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it is. Yes, yes. As, as by the time people hear this podcast, both books will be uh, available: Kyle Turner's book and Sarah's book. And, uh, yeah, and we're you know working on other stuff, and I'm working on other stuff. I can't say you know I don't have a deal yet, but I'm I'm trying to get a couple of other books in the pipeline, film and TV type stuff, and and I'm finishing a documentary about my father, who was a jazz musician, recording his final album, which was oh. 
Yeah, a, a, a collection of Duke Ellington arrangements that he did. And uh, yeah, he did while he was dying of uh, cancer. He recorded his final album. We made a documentary about it and it's pretty great. I'm not bragging on myself. I'm saying my dad's performance was great, you know? Yes. Yeah, so we're putting that together and uh, I'm a couple of edits away from having a showable version of that. Oh, wow. I That's look incredible. forward to that. I can't wait to see that. But yes, uh, mzs.press. It's uh, Matt Zoller site's publishing company and bookstore because you published a couple of books as well, including yeah. uh, Walter Chaw's great book on uh, Walter Hill. Yes, yes, yes. And a couple of Deadwood books. And oh, and you got that. Oh, look, he's holding up a copy of the Ashiro autobiography, which he got from us. Yeah, it was a big help in our psychedelic kaiju episode that uh, I ordered it from you because it was like, I'm not going to give the money to Amazon when you've got the book. So, I mean, great books yes. at mzs.press. So please, uh, everybody, check it out. There's definitely some books you could read and get stoned to, including... And speaking of uh, King Kong, speaking of King Kong, we have an entire dedicated kaiju section, and we have multiple King Kong books. We've got the making, we got a book about the sort of cultural history of King Kong. We've got a book about the making of the 33 version. And the making of the 2005 version and Kong Skull Island. We have all of those. It's a very giant monster heavy collection of books. <laughs> it's a great, awesome. great resource. It really is. And it's really good for us because I, you know, we have to buy books on these movies before we have them on the show. So I could sound like a know it all and mansplain to everybody. So, <laughs> well, hey, I've really enjoyed this. I, I wish I could stay longer, but I can't move this. Thing I've got to do. But, <laughs> oh no, no! I could talk about I, honestly. Honestly, I could. I could talk about honest to Godzilla. I could talk about <laughs> monster movies all day long. If you'll we be should back. have you back and 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 talk about Godzilla versus Kong, the new uh, oh HBO Max version. He's a he's a defender of the new ones. And uh, I, I, guys, I gave it four stars. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Amazing. I, yes. I, because you ask yourself, I think every critic should ask themselves, like, does the film achieve what it clearly set out to do? And yes. I think the answer is a resounding yes in that case. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> what did Godzilla vs. Kong? Yes, indeed, <laughs> <he> did. Spectacularly. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yes. I can't go. I awesome. can't take this movie to court and claim they didn't deliver what they promised in the title. <laughs> they verse. They verse the hell out of that. You know. They sure did. And Matt Zoller cites everybody, friend of the show. Thank you yes. so much. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. It was really a lot of fun. Okay. It was so cool. Before we get into the weed recommendations, does anyone have anything to add about the bride and the beast? How have we also not talked about the insane blackface in this movie? Oh. The the helper, the assistant guy? Oh, yeah. What's his name? I forgot his name. He's horrible. Taro. His name is Taro. Taro. Yes. And Ta he's obviously like one of Ed Wood's friends. Yeah. Who is done up in brown face uh, the, the entire time. Horrible. Oh, God. He is horrible. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, you guys, you smoked the same weed. You don't know what it is, and you had out-of-body experiences. Uh, Rosie and I recently had our 10th wedding anniversary. We had a big party for it in the backyard. And uh, somebody, I don't know who, some great person left me and Rosie too a paper sack with some luchador gummies. They must be listeners of the show, but they also left these heavenly sweet cannabis infused chili lime crackers <gasps> from, from the heavenly sweet company. Uh, let's wow. see. 
They are the they're according to its website, they are prepared with the finest quality ingredients made with the adult palate and lifestyle in mind. And now each of these, these are like Cheez-Its. They're little cannabis-infused Cheez-Its. If I can Well, at least they made the package hard to open. How much is one? Okay, each one is one milligram of THC with a little bit of CBD. D in it. Um, yeah, there's some CBD too. I don't know how many, but yeah, each one. So I ate eight of them, not knowing how really potent they were. And it was like watching the bride and the beast underwater. Like, like it was like <laughs> the Aquaman bride and the beast. I was so high through it. I might've slept <laughs> for a chunk of it, but I usually, I did watch the movie not stoned too, but he um, probably fell asleep in the same chunk because I also fell asleep. Okay. And I woke up for the great ending. I mean, I was there of for course. the great ending uh -huh. and it still was underwater. Uh, the one thing I'm going to warn you with these is they're pretty good. They are pretty good. You, they don't taste like you're eating a bag of shake, which I was expecting. So you don't, when you eat them, you're like, oh, this is a pretty good cheese it. And you're not really aware of the weed in them. So eat them and put them away. Because if you have them sitting next to you while you're already like so stoned, Bride and the Beast looks underwater, you're going to start eating them when you get the munchies like their cheese its and you're, you're, gonna really do a number on your brain you're gonna uh felina could probably eat 20 of them eight was more than enough for me i kind of wish i stopped at five but they're good so you want to eat more you want to eat handfuls of them like you're just pulling them out of a box of cheese it's but but yeah they're very good very potent highly recommended for any of your old movies for young stoners activities from heavenly sweet cannabis infused chili lime crackers so how many are in a bag 100 milligrams thc in two milligrams CBD per package, 10 servings per package. So they're saying like 10. So, yeah. uh, so a hundred, I guess. Right. hundred. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it feels, it's a pretty That's packed crazy. bag. Like uh, you could get a big box of Cheez-Its and it'll have less than this much in the huge box of Cheez-Its. So they, <laughs> they give you a lot of these things. Nice. In so many ways, I think that, Bride and the Beast is what this podcast is all about. This movie is, especially the first half of it, is absolutely jam-packed with nuggets and ruminations for the stoned mind to ponder and laugh about and discover. It's so absurd. The reality of it is so nuts that um, I really just think that this is why we why this podcast was created <laughs> you know it's for movies like this is the kind of movie i want to watch almost every episode is some absurd weird old thing that you you look at and puzzle over and it's just i mean my god it's on another level with just crazy turns of logic and and absurdities and and i mean what what a gift to stoners everywhere. The Ed Wood, he really is the Orson Welles for uh stoned people watching movies on uh on television late at night. Brighton the Beast is currently streaming on Prime Video, and you can also find a complete version of it on YouTube. So that has been the Gorilla episode. We got to thank Matt Solar Sites, who had to take off because he had to interview some big HBO star. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Coming up in 
three weeks, next month, whenever. It's finally here, the Felina Apocalypse. Yes, Felina will be programming our movies and she's just 22, so everything is old to her. Felina, can you tell us what our <laughs> listeners can look forward to? Yeah, I'm very excited to announce. We will be listening. We will be watching. Midnight Madness. <laughs> and one other one that I haven't thought of yet. Okay, we've been warned. The Zoomers are mad as hell and they're not going to take these two and a half hour movies anymore. And you can stick that in your pipe and smoke it all right here on Old Movies for Young Stoners.